Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Breaking right now in the Gaza Strip, the most murderous frenzy of the war is taking place under cover of darkness and a complete communications breakdown. They have been cut off from all light and all assistance, it would seem. Gaza, 25 miles long, 7.5 miles wide at its widest point, 3.5 at its narrowest, is the proverbial barrel where the fish inside with nowhere to run, not even the sea, are being mercilessly murdered. They are not fish, and the ammunition is not bullets. They are being missiled and bombed by the world's most powerful war aircraft, given to them gratis by the United States of America. One percent of the entire population of Gaza has been murdered in 30 days. Just get your mind around that while you ponder how could that not be described as genocide. Some of the greatest speakers in the world are on this show tonight. So I always tell you to fasten your seatbelts, but perhaps extra tightly this evening, because this is going to be a very bumpy night. It's the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. It has been a week so ghastly that to show the images would see this show banned from the internet. It has been a week of crazed massacres, genocidal, frenzied, crazed acts of mass murder, mainly of women and children. By the time I finished talking this evening. The death toll will have reached 10,000, and 5,000 of those will be children. And many of the others will have been women. This is an important number, 10,000 and 5,000. You'll remember that in one of the more shameful, of many shameful episodes, President Biden of the United States sought to cast doubt on the correctness of those death figures. And taking their cue, Western news bulletin propagandists began to append the term Hamas-run health ministry to the claims of the dead and the injured. But according to the Israeli media this evening, the mass circulation Yediot Aharonot Actually, the number of dead Palestinians in the Gaza Strip is not 10,000, but 20,000. If the Israeli figure is correct, rather than the Palestinian figure from the Hamas-run health agency, then the death toll is double 
what the Palestinians had said that it was. Therefore, you can scale up the number of injured. The Palestinian figure for the number of wounded, wounded in the context of a place where virtually none of the hospitals are still operating, even 10% normally, and 14 of them out of 26 have stopped working altogether, injured means something quite different to what it would mean in a motorway pileup in your country or mine. Because there's no ambulance to take your child to the hospital which isn't working or isn't working even 10% of full capacity. There's uh, no ambulance because the ambulances have been systematically and deliberately destroyed. You can't phone for assistance because the phone network has been cut off. You can't give your injured child a drink of water because there is no water and has not been water allowed into Gaza in the last 30 days. You can't go to the local water tank because Israel has destroyed it. You can't give your child anything to eat while you wait for a place in the malfunctioning hospital because there is no food. You, if you're lucky, will see your child lying on a floor with an heroic paramedic pumping on her chest, trying to keep her alive. Most of the time, with no electricity, by the lights of mobile telephones, by candles, candles in 2023 in a hospital operating theater. This is the theater of the macabre. No one has ever seen anything quite like this before. Things have happened like this before, but none of us were able to watch it happening on our telephones, on our screens, and yet we are apparently completely powerless to bring it even, to coin a phrase, to a humanitarian pause so that the victims can be given a drink of water before they are murdered. We have watched a theater for 30 days of mass slaughter of the innocents. This is not an Israel-Palestine war. It's not an Israel-Gaza war. If anything, it's an Israel-children war. But it isn't a war. The Palestinians have no air force, have no navy, have no anti-aircraft guns, have no air raid shelters. They have nothing. They are literally defenseless residents of a ghetto. Now, I have spent decades avoiding obvious allusions to what happened in the European genocide against the Jews when six million of them were industrially slaughtered and were only stopped from being slaughtered by the victory of the Red Army, which liberated almost all of the death camps. But these people are living in a concentration camp. They're living in a ghetto. 
of the kind the Nazis crammed Jewish people into as a prelude to their mass extermination. These people are living in a concentration camp from which there is no escape, not even into the sea. Israeli warships were shelling the beach this afternoon. They have nowhere to run. They have nowhere to hide. They are being genocidally murdered. And 1% of the entire population has been killed in 30 days. If this lasts for 60, 90, 180 days, we are looking at slaughter on a biblical scale. And no one appears able to do anything about it. The press were briefed that Blinken took a demand from Biden to Netanyahu this week demanding a ceasefire, albeit a temporary one, so that Americans could be got out of the hell, so that expired biscuits could be delivered through the Rafah crossing to the starving, desperately thirsty people therein. Well, that may have been a lie. It could well have been a lie. But if it was true, Netanyahu responded with some of the most hideous monstrosities of massacres of the war to date. I will never forget Rashid Street as a convoy of Palestinian refugees, refugees for the second time, were fleeing their homes in North Gaza for South Gaza, as Israel had told them to do when they were slaughtered on Rashid Street, the coastal highway. Their bodies dismembered, beheaded, splattered all over the highway. It wasn't the largest casualty. By far, there have been entire bloodlines wiped out in bombing, but somehow this one captured the horror of what's happening to me in Technicolor, mostly in red blood. Nightmare on Rashid Street. I will never forget it. Neither should you forget it. And we should make sure that our quizzling politicians, quizzling journalists, collaborators in genocide, everyone should not be allowed to forget it either. The other spectacular, and it may be, of course, all of these will be overtaken in the darkness this very evening. It's only nine o'clock in Gaza now. It's many hours until the sun will rise was outside the hospital of Al-Shifa, a hospital I have myself been in a hundred times. Israel was informed that ambulances full of foreigners, including Americans, was leaving the Al-Shifa hospital for Rafa in the hope of escape and treatment abroad. No sooner had the ambulances left 
They were still passing through the gate of a hospital when they were slaughtered. This time it was in broad daylight. Everyone saw it. Many filmed it. Many of the brave journalists on the ground in Gaza filmed it. So there was no way it could be claimed that Hamas done it or a gas explosion in the kitchen of someone's house did it or a gender reveal party had gone out of hand. No, everybody saw it. So the Israeli answer was that there was a Hamas man in one of the ambulances. That was, of course, a black lie. But even if it had been true, how does anyone imagine that it could be legal, that it could be other than a war crime? to wipe out a fleet of ambulances because one man was inside it. How does anyone imagine that this can escape everlasting opprobrium and shame? Not just on the perpetrators. Frankly, they are beyond shame. If you elect Netanyahu for 20 years, we're not talking about an electorate with much capacity for shame. God bless the 13% of Israeli citizens, one, three, 13%, who actually do care about what's happening in Gaza. No, I'm talking about the everlasting shame of those who are making it possible, who gave the money, who gave the weapons, who've sent their special forces to stand alongside the murderers who sent their battleships to the eastern Mediterranean. Those who shill for it. These disgusting television interviewers that presage an interview with Al-Nuk from the Palestinian Embassy in London, a diplomat accredited to the Foreign Office, who ask him, the morning after, 22 members of his family had been massacred. His parents, his sister, her children. The first question is, do you condemn Hamas? Doesn't Israel have a right to defend itself? I tell you, there's blood on the hands of these journalists, these publications, like The Economist, which just yesterday, why Israel must fight on, cheering them on in this genocide. These journalists, these broadcasters are dripping in the blood of these 5,000 Palestinian infants and oh, what infants. From the newborn to the toddler, to the little schoolboy, the little schoolgirl, in their school uniform, torn to pieces by grown men from high above. You see, the idea of someone up close and personal, cutting someone, feeling their warm blood on their hands, murdering them 
Just looking into their face is enough to chill anybody's blood. But it is no different when you're doing the slaying from high. When you don't see the child, you just decapitate. When you will never feel, smell, taste their blood, it's mass murder. Just the same, but it's worse than the lone killer with one knife who kills one, maybe two, maybe 10. These people have killed 5,000 children, two and a half thousand women in 30 days without ever having to look in the eyes of a single one of their victims. Went home to their own comforts at the end of their mission. These people, those who show for them, those who facilitate for them, those who make any and all of this possible, will never be forgotten and will never be forgiven. At the weekend, as every weekend of this last 30 days, millions of good, decent people, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, people of no faith at all, have been out in their millions on virtually every main thoroughfare of every major city everywhere in the world in unprecedented numbers. In Washington, D.C., 300,000 people, the biggest demonstration since the Iraq war, were rattling the gates of Joe Biden's White House. 80% of Joe Biden's voters want a ceasefire now, but Joe Biden is unable or unwilling either to call for one or to secure one, despite the fact he's paying for every last murder. In Britain, all over the country, north, south, east, and west, in the land of Balfour, where this disaster was authored in the building in which I sat for almost 30 years, when on behalf of one people, the British Prime Minister promised to a second people, or rather those claiming to represent a second people, the Zionist movement promised them the land of a third people, the Palestinian people. It was unique, even by imperialist standards, because when the British government promised that land to another people, they didn't even possess it themselves as an imperial possession. It was still in the hands of the Ottoman Empire, as it had been for 400 years. Pretty crazy stuff, right? It was just a letter, just another lying piece of perfidious Albion, no paper, promising to one people a land whilst at the same time promising that nothing shall be done to prejudice the existing rights of those in the native population living there right now when I write this letter. Pretty crazy. 106 years ago in the building, on the Thames, the House of Commons, 
and look at all of this. Think of all the blood that has flowed by that building as a result of that declaration ever since. And there is no sign of it stopping. A murder took place this evening, one which may have very portentous consequences. A Russian journalist from a Moscow TV station, his wife and a grandmother and a journalist, a Lebanese journalist from the south of Lebanon and his wife and children were attacked by an Israeli warplane which incinerated all of them, killing all three of the children, killing the grandmother, the others presently clinging to life in intensive care. This is portentous for two reasons. First of all, because Hezbollah has answered, as Syed Hassan Nasrallah said that he would in his speech on Friday, with an incredible bombardment of the Zionist settler camp at Kiryat Shamona, one of the most notorious of all these notorious Israeli settlements. It's on fire right now as I speak. But secondly, the murder of these Russian citizens, respected journalists, will not go unanswered from Moscow either. Well, right after this, we have the one and only, and I mean the one and only, Professor Norman Finkelstein. Don't go away. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Professor Norman Finkelstein is the best-selling author of several books, but his latest book, Timaeus or What, is called Gaza. And it is the number one bestseller on the Amazon Middle East books uh, list. The end of this interview... I just know that you're going to want to buy it. He's a professor of great eminence, and he joins us now on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Professor Norman, thanks uh, for being with us. I have resisted uh, for decades, actually, 
uh, sometimes under instruction from my superiors, uh, allusions uh, between Gaza and the Warsaw Ghetto, between Gaza and the camps and so on. But hasn't Gaza now become a death camp? I think that's an accurate description. I think from 2006 or earlier, it was uh, technically accurate to describe Gaza as a concentration camp. Uh, already in 2003, the respected Hebrew University professor, Baruch Kimmerling, described Gaza as, quote, the largest concentration camp ever. Uh, Giora Island, who's a senior official in Israeli in the Israeli government and Israeli elite circles, Giora uh, Island described Gaza as quote a huge concentration camp. And now that was before, in the case of Professor Kimmerling, and the case of Island, that was before the blockade had been ratcheted up in 2006 and then ratcheted up another notch in 2007. So already before the brutal blockade of Gaza, which Richard Goldstone himself in the Goldstone report after Operation Cast Lead, he said it likely rose to a quote, crime against humanity. So well before the developments I just described, the um, a senior Israeli professor, a senior Israeli official, uh, was describing Gaza as a concentration camp. However, I do think it's correct to say at this point, it's no longer only, if we can use that qualification, it's not only a concentration camp, but it's become a death camp. Now, for those of those of you listeners who recoil at that description, I would ask them to respond to the following question. On October 8th, three of Israel's senior officials stated the following. Number one, Chaim Herzog, the president of Israel, stated that Israel would not distinguish between Hamas and civilians. He said they voted for Hamas, meaning the civilians. They didn't overthrow Hamas, and therefore they bear the same responsibility for the events of October 7th as Hamas itself. Statement number two, was by the Israeli Defense Minister Gallant. He said, henceforth, we're not going to allow any food, water, fuel, or electricity into Gaza. And statement number three was by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who said that this was going to probably be the longest, as they call it, operation that Israel has had to conduct. Now, Operation Protective Edge in 2014, it lasted 51 days. So let's add up the three statements. Number one, we're not distinguishing between civilians and combatants. Number two, 
were not allowing any food, water, electricity, or fuel into Gaza for combatants and for the 2.3 million civilians, of whom half are children. And number three, we expect that this operation will go on for a minimum 51 plus days. So if you add up those three statements and you connect the dots, I would ask you listeners to respond to the question, how can that not be described as a genocide? How can that not be described as a murder warrant for the 2.3 million people in Gaza, of whom half are children, and about 70% are refugees from the 1948 war and their descendants? Now, it is true around the edges, around the narrowest of margins, the U.S. has put some pressure on Biden, basically, excuse me, some pressure on the Israeli government by Biden uh, and Lincoln, so as, I, so as it doesn't look so horrible on the television screen, the computer screen. But that the impact of those uh, uh, those marginal efforts are so insignificant that I don't think they need at this point, at this point, they need to be factored in or in any way dilute the fact that what's going on now in Gaza is a genocide. The the fighting or the killing uh, rather stepped up rather than decreased after Blinken's visit. One was told in the briefings that he was going to ask for a pause for uh, a brief ceasefire and so on. But actually, this very evening, It's the heaviest bombardment of the war. We saw the ludicrous story today uh, in the New York Times, I think, uh, that Biden had asked Netanyahu to use smaller bombs. Uh, I agree with you that at the margin, a small bomb is marginally better than a big one, will kill marginally fewer, if you're lucky, uh, than a big bomb uh, will. But why is Netanyahu treating uh, Blinken and, by extension, Biden with such disdain? There are several points you made which require a response. Number one, there is this kind of terminology that has entered into the uh, current round of murder, high-tech murder. Uh, The first terminological addition has been this expression of humanitarian pause. It's very hard to make sense of exactly what the humanitarian pause means. It seems to mean that you're going to allow 15 minutes to let the, to fatten up the turkey before you kill it. A humanitarian pause is something along the lines of giving a prisoner scheduled next morning for the electric chair, giving them a last meal. What is the point of a humanitarian pause of 15 minutes of a half hour if the bombing is going to directly resume and just murder the people who a moment ago 
benefited from a glass of water or a cheese sandwich. The issue is not a humanitarian pause. The issue is a ceasefire. And we shouldn't allow ourselves to be distracted by this idiotic terminology. The demand has been by the international community and its various constituents for a ceasefire. Number two is talk about a big bomb versus a little bomb. The whole thing at some level is completely insane because of aspects of international law that are insane. So let's take the example of Jabalia. Israel has been dropping, as it did in Shujaya during Operation Protective Edge, Israel has been dropping 2,000 pound bombs in, in uh, Jabalia refugee camp. Jabalia refugee camp is among the densest populated refugee camps in among the densely populated, most densely populated places, places on earth. Okay. And Israel's pretexts are number one, it always, it always finds a Hamas militant, usually a Hamas militant leader, or the tunnels that they're, they claim to be targeting. Now, under international law, there are three basic principles. There's the principle of distinction, there's the principle of discrimination, and there's the principle of disproportionality. I'm using the D for each of them so your listeners can follow. The principle of distinction, every one of your listeners knows. It simply means you're not allowed to target civilians or civilian sites hospitals, schools, homes. You can only target military uh, combatants or military sites. That's the most basic principle of international law. The second principle is the principle of discrimination. Discrimination simply means you can't use a weapon that cannot discriminate between civilians and combatants. Let's say poison gas. Poison gas just spreads, can't contain its spread, can't dis distinguish between civilians and combatants. Therefore, it's illegal under international law. And then there's this third principle called disproportionality or proportionality. I use disproportionality because of the D, the alliterative aspect. What does disproportionality mean? It simply means if, you, uh, if you're targeting a legitimate military site, the I hate these expressions, so I have to use them. The collateral damage to civilians has to be proportional to the value of the military target. So if you're going to target two combatants who happen to be lodged in a civilian home, and there are five civilians in that home, you have to make the judgment is the value of your target to combatants sufficiently great as to justify killing three civilians? That's the principle of proportionality. The value of the military target has to be proportional to the collateral damage to civilians. Okay, but now you're dropping 2,000 pound bombs in the middle of a densely populated refugee camp, how could any 
principle of proportionality possibly justify that? Killing one Hamas militant and in the process killing 200 civilians in Jabalia, I think the figure was 195. And yet, when you open up the newspapers or you listen to the pundits, they bring on all of these learned experts in what's called IHL, International Humanitarian Law, or the laws of war, who say this is a very difficult question of proportionality. And when I listen to that, it shows you how rotten, how insane this whole idea of the laws of war are. If people can honestly believe dropping 2,000 pound bombs in refugee camps is a complicated legal question. To me, that is straight out insane. And I would add, if you were to go to any of my classes, because I teach the laws of war, international humanitarian law, and if you asked anyone in the class, according to the terms of proportionality, which is a very vague term, can killing 200 civilians in a refugee camp be justified by the fact that you want to hit a tunnel or a Hamas militant. I could say with certainty that of a class of 40, you couldn't find more than one student who would defend such insanity. You could not find it because we've discussed it in my class many times, these hypotheticals. And yet, when you get out of a class which has a normal sense of right and wrong, and then you turn to these so-called experts, you just want to wretch. You want to wretch when you hear these kinds of expert deliberations on whether or not, the other day, two days ago, there was an article in The Guardian, and it was a question of Jabalia. And at the very end, of you, your listeners can find it, it was just two days ago. At the very end of the article, they have a woman expert in international humanitarian law, and she says, yes, this is a tough question. No, it's not a tough question. You're a moral idiot. There's nothing tough about that question. You're a moral idiot if you think that's a tough question. Now, let me turn now to the third question, the third aspect of the question you asked. And the question with Blinken and uh, Biden and why they aren't putting more pressure on Israel. First of all, let's stop with the silliness. Israel suffered a huge blow on October 7th in terms of its vaunted security services, its commandos, you know, the raid on Entebbe and all the claims made about Israel's brilliant uh, um, intelligence system, it was a disaster. It's not, it was a lot more than a sleep at the switch, you know? So 
That's number one. Number two, Biden immediately gave them $14 billion. Number three, there were aircraft carriers sent by the United States. Don't tell me, don't tell me Biden and Blinken were unable to say to the Prime Minister of Israel, listen, buddy, you just effed up royally on October 7th. We're pulling your chestnuts from the fire. We're holding up any action in the United Nations. Don't tell me that you're not going to allow for a humanitarian pause. If the United States wanted to put its foot down with Israel, it could put its foot down with Israel. It chooses not to. And for each side, it's a game. For Netanyahu, it gets to show he, how strong he is. You remember that interview on October 9th, roughly, with Naftali Bennett, uh, with the British broadcaster, where he says, we're lions, we're lions, we're lions. So Netanyahu gets to play that role. You know, we told the United States no. And the United States gets to play the role of the pig with white gloves. Gets to say, you see, we tried. We did our best. No, you didn't do your best. It's all theatrics. It's all show. And it's the same thing with using smaller bombs. It doesn't look good. It's not a good optic. If you go to YouTube, you'll get images of what a 2,000-pound bomb, bomb looks like. And I posted in my website today. And that's not a good picture. It's not a good, as they like to say, I hate all these expressions, but I'll use them. It's not a good optic. When you take, you superimpose all the smoke and flames from that 2,000 pound bomb, and in your mind, you superimpose it on a densely populated refugee camp, half of which consists of children, not a good optic. So Biden opens up the Times, and the Times says Israel dropped two 2,000-pound bombs on Jabalia, and he says, no, doesn't look good. So he says to Israel, use smaller bombs. Oh, like, let's use... Um... Unbelievable. Now, uh, speaking of bombs, uh, you and I and many uh, people close to the subject have known ever since the brave uh, whistleblower Mordechai Vanunu still uh, held uh, today, uh, decades later, uh, having been in solitary confinement for 20 years or so. We know from him uh, in London, he blew the whistle, uh, that Israel was in possession of the nuclear bomb. But Israel has always denied this, and nobody in the international system has ever asked to inspect their nuclear weapons facility. No one's ever asked them to sign the NPT, Non-Proliferation Treaty. No one's ever asked them to be visited by the IAEA, all the things that they have done to others, Iraq, Iran, and others. Um, but today, uh, the former information minister gave us some pretty big information, didn't he? he? Gave the public, anyway, some pretty big information. He admitted on TV uh, that Israel dropping a nuclear bomb on Gaza was one of the options on the table. How do you think that's going to play? 
First of all, I don't think they can do that because of the blowback. It's not as if Gaza is out on a desert island. I do think, now I want to preface what I'm about to say, uh, I have no knowledge of military affairs, and I say with no shame, military affairs has never been my cup of tea, and I'm not going to pretend to be a, uh, a Rommel or a Montgomery, uh, that's not me. On the other hand, as a rational matter, it doesn't seem to me possible that Israel can fight a war on two fronts. Actually, barely Israel can barely fight a war on one front. In 2006, when Israel in, uh, went to war in Lebanon, uh, the war lasted 34 days, sometimes called the Lebanon War II. Uh, the head of the Hezbollah, Nasrallah, called it the divine victory. Uh, uh, whatever you call it, uh, Israel brought, my memory is it brought 30,000 troops to the Lebanese front, but it did not want to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the party of God. And there I think uh, uh, Syed Nasrallah in his speech, uh, not trying to be demagogic about it, uh, but I think he was correct. He said the Israeli army is only capable of committing massacres. It's not a, it's no longer a fighting force. And that's why it held off so long in Gaza. It was, let me get back to Lebanon. In Lebanon in 2006, it didn't, inv it didn't invade Lebanon on the ground, a ground invasion. It didn't do it until the last 72 hours. And at that point, the Israelis were desperate because they didn't want to send a ground force into uh, uh, Lebanon. You don't want to tangle with the party of God. That's not a smart move. So they already asked Condoleezza Rice, who was the um, uh, Secretary of State at the time, they asked her to get an, a uh, UN resolution for a ceasefire. Because if you had a choice between a ceasefire and the party of God, if you have any prudence, you choose a ceasefire. And then when the war was already over, Israel sent its troops into Lebanon. They flew across the terrain to the Latani River for a photo op to show that we invaded Lebanon. And the Hezbollah's reaction was, in the last day of the war, it fired 10,000, my memory is, my memory is pretty good on this, fired 10,000 rockets, the largest number uh, in those 34 days to transmit the message to Israel, <laughs> you didn't win, you know. In the case of the uh, current situation, Israel waited about three weeks to just pulverize the place the kingdom come before it's willing to send in its ground forces. How far it's sent them in, I don't know. How significant the Hamas resistance will be, I don't know. I don't think one should... Uh, have too high expectations from Hamas um, in terms of its ability, once that place has been pulverized, uh, to carry out a significant resistance. Uh, the other fact is the, the uh, strategy of the uh, Israeli army, or at least one of the strategies that's been discussed, is to seal off the northern sector to bomb the area connecting the northern sector to the southern sector, the border 
the, the provision of water between the northern sector and the southern sector, and thereby seal, seal off all the tunnels, and then leave the militants who are in the tunnels, leave them there to begin to suffocate or starve, and then force them out. I Again, I don't know anything about military affairs, but that seems like a plausible strategy, and there's no way that speaking as a non-military person, uh, there seems to be no way that uh, Hamas would be able to counter that. Uh, the only possibility is, uh, which now seems to be a slim possibility, that the party, of, that the Hezbollah will enter in a significant way uh, if it seems like the cause is going to go down to utter and total defeat. Uh, we don't know. I think that Nasrallah's speech, I wrote to my friends, comrades, uh, I said, I'm hoping for a miracle. Well, it wasn't a miracle, and that just gives further proof that miracles don't happen in this world. Uh, he was in the, uh, Hezbollah is an impossible situation because if they do something, Lebanon is going to be leveled mm -hmm. and the people will turn against Hezbollah. Uh, and also, it's unlikely that Iran wants a broader war now, because just on the eve of the war, they had that deal between the $6 billion and releasing the hostages, which no doubt in Iran's mind was going to pave the way to some sort of uh, rapprochement, not a significant one, but some sort of rapprochement with the United States. So they don't want a broader war either. It's a very tough situation now. Uh, However, one thing I would say is, going back to your original question, uh, Israel cannot fight a two-front war. Now, it can't use nuclear weapons in Lebanon because of the blowback. You know, the atmosphere will be, anyone who knows anything about nuclear weapons, the atmosphere will be completely contaminated. Uh, whether it can use, there is, I've read, because as I say, I teach the laws of war, there is some discussion about the capacity of what are called tactical or limited nuclear weapons to contain the blowback, the um, radiation, contamination, and so forth. If such weapons exist, uh, there is a possibility they'll, they'll use it in Iran. Uh, and of course, that should be cause for significant, <laughs> to say the least, significant concern. Um, but that all is premised on uh, the Hezbollah opening up a second front, which Troyes Nisrallah did to claim it had. You will recall he said that a quarter of the Israeli Air Force is now directed to the north, that half the troops are stationed in the north, and he did everything he can to convey that he's doing something. But I talked to many people afterwards, and they were very disappointed in Israel's speech, even though realistically, he didn't really have many options. He didn't really have any options. So it's a, it's a very tough, it's a tough situation. Uh, on the other tough, hand, tough, tough, tough situation indeed. Professor, uh, I told everyone about the Amazon number one. Uh, bestseller that you've got now. Uh, just remind me of the title 
and uh, anywhere else that they can get it because some people don't like to deal with Amazon uh, because it's very, very important that people read your book. Okay, the title of the book is Gaza, an Inquest into its Martyrdom, and it's published by University of California Press. I don't think any bookstores carry it, unsurprisingly, uh, but people can use their creativity and figure out options other than Amazon. I'm not aware of them because I, I just publish books and then move on. I don't know anything about the mechanics. Well, more power to your elbow. Professor Norman Finkelstein, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Got some great guests coming up. Stay tuned. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Let's go to Dan Cohen, who is a journalist with great experience of both Israel and Palestine and Gaza, lived there for many years, and is making what I think is going to be a very important documentary film about the matter. He's a regular guest of ours, Dan Cohen in the US. Welcome back to the show. How do you, Thank you see George. the overall situation this evening as the bombing doesn't pause, certainly doesn't cease, but ramps up. Well, it's absolutely horrific to watch the never-ending constant massacres being committed by Israel against the civilian population in Gaza. Um, I'm sick to my stomach when I wake up every day and see the images of dead children and maimed uh, bodies uh, in the most, uh, most defenseless of places. Everywhere in Gaza is defenseless, but bombing, hospitals, entrances to hospitals, ambulances, uh, schools. I mean, it's, there's just no end to the depravity of Israel's uh, military campaign. Uh, it's, you know, I, th I don't think I don't I think it's completely fair to use the word genocide. Um, you know, at the same time, what do we see inside Israel? A spiraling situation that Benjamin Netanyahu really has no control over. I mean, we saw the families, families of hostages uh, whose family, who, whose whose loved ones are are uh, captives inside Gaza and who have been relatively quiet to this point. Well, then they clashed. They they uh, their demonstration was attacked by the police and they actually clashed with the police, demanding that Netanyahu uh, have a ceasefire and negotiations for the safe return of their loved ones. Um, and so this could spiral into something much bigger. You see them being completely ignored, lied to 
and manipulated by uh, the, the Israeli government. Um, and Netanyahu is already the most hated man in Israel. And that was before uh, this October 7th attack, which he somehow failed to anticipate or to protect Israeli society from. Um, I mean, back in July, amid these massive protests, 28% of Israelis were actually considering leaving the country permanently, relocating, uh, because of the instability of the internal contradictions of Israeli society. And now, I mean, can we imagine how much, how much more, uh, how many more Israelis are trying, are, are thinking about leaving? So, as horrible as as the bombing of Gaza is, um, and as well as in southern Lebanon, uh, we have to ask, what is the future of Zionism? It's an inherently unstable project, and its internal contradictions may very well lead to its collapse. Well, uh, before that, of course, uh, they may kill a lot of people. Uh, 1%, a full 1% of the Gaza population has now been killed in 30 days, according to the Israeli press. Yediot Aronot says the number of dead is not 10,000, it is 20,000. And they're quoting Israeli security officials, who are unlikely to be exaggerating the number of Palestinians killed. This meets any kind of test or definition of genocide, quite apart from the uh, deliberate uh, encouragement of disease and death by hunger, by thirst, uh, soon by cold. Uh, where are all these people whose houses have been destroyed by 2,000-pound bombs? Where are they going to sleep when the weather turns bad? Uh, what are they going to drink? What are they going to eat? I mean, to even argue that this is anything other than genocide seems completely perverse to me. Absolutely. The level of uh, depravity, of suffering that Palestinians of Gaza are being subjected to, I don't know when the last time we've seen anything like this is, maybe in World War II, but it is purely a genocidal war. We've seen numerous statements uh, of intent to genocide from Israeli military figures, from political figures, mm. including Benjamin Netanyahu, who has repeatedly on Twitter referred to Palestinians as Amalek, which is an ancient biblical nation that must be exterminated, including the babies. And that is precisely what's happening in the Gaza Strip, where this defenseless population uh, is being wiped off the map. Um, I mean... I, I think it's very important to emphasize that all of this is happening because of the United States. It's here in, in Washington, where I am, where the decisions are being made to allow this to continue. Because at any point, Joe Biden or any of his handlers, whoever's really running the show, could call Netanyahu and tell him it has to stop right now. But they refuse to do that. Instead, yeah. they've given him a blank check uh, and encouraged him to continue uh, to, to slaughter or as many people as possible. So this comes back to Washington. Why though, Dan? That's what I don't understand. I strongly take the view and have all my life that America controls Israel, not Israel controlling America, as many have uh, suspected or alleged. Uh, the head of the dog is in Washington. It's merely the tail out in the empire. So I agree with you that uh, Biden could stop this 
right now with a single phone call. Uh, the big question, therefore, is why doesn't he? He's got an election coming up. 80% of his own voters are demanding a ceasefire uh, in opinion polls. Why does he continue doubling down behind Netanyahu? Well, I think you see the power of the Israel lobby right here. Um, and it's not only, you know, it's, it's not only the infrastructure of APAC and, you know, the various lobby outfits funding uh, members of Congress. Um, you know, it's, there's, an, there's an ideological commitment to Zionism throughout our political establishment, where even figures like Tulsi Gabbard, who for, for years sort of presented herself as an anti-war candidate, or Robert uh, F. Kennedy Jr., who presents himself now as an anti-war candidate, the entire political spectrum, Bernie Sanders, who refused to call, who denounced calls for a ceasefire, all of them are committed to this ideological project. They're ideologically committed to the project of, of Zionism. And I think fundamentally, it is because our ruling class sees the model of Zionism as something they want to uh, to replicate throughout the world, to have this not only permanent apartheid state, but a genocidal machine that wipes out anybody who dissents. So, you know, any remember when Hillary Clinton said about Julian Assange, can't we just take him out with a drone? Well, that's what's happening in Gaza now. Mm. They're killing journalists like, you know, like flies. And so this is the idea of what they actually want to do to the rest of us. So even for people who don't particularly care about Palestine, or sympathize with the Palestinian plight for whatever reason, they should understand that the Palestinians are the canary in the coal mine. That what 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 this is the dystopian future that they want to impose on all of us, anyone who dissents from the regime. And so it's a warning. Gaza is a warning of what can happen anywhere in the world as long as the U.S. empire exists. Um, so I think it's not just a, it's it's more than the control of the Israel lobby, the influence of the Israel lobby that plays a very important part. But it's a greater ideological project is what I think. And yet 300,000, it said, uh, were on the streets of Washington on Saturday. I've been on big demonstrations in Washington before the Iraq war uh, in particular. Uh, this was a pretty significant section of American public opinion, going all the way to D.C. to march on the streets. It was an impressive sight, wasn't it? Well, I was there, and it was really inspiring to, to partake in that, knowing that there are so many people who oppose this genocide, who are outraged, who are saying, we we're not, we're not going to vote for you, Biden. And of course, everyone knows that the other guy would be doing the same thing. Trump is, you know, Trump is very clear that he, he said that uh, every death is the fault of Hamas. So our entire political establishment is the problem. It's not only Biden, it's everyone around him. It's the Republican Party, sure. too. Um, I mean, we've only seen one single senator uh, call for a ceasefire. Um, I mean, that's that's shameful. Uh, so it was it was an amazing sight to see so many people in downtown Washington rejecting this genocide, um, even as bombs were dropping on Gaza while we were marching. It was, you know, seeing this uh, like 30, 40 meter long paper with the names of every single Palestinian who's been killed in Gaza, 
was an incredible sight. It was very powerful. Seeing the names of the journalists who are delivering the information from Gaza, Motaz, Azaiza, uh, uh, Walid Ahdo from Al Jazeera, um, uh, you know, there, there, there are many of them, Plestia and Bisan and, and Hind Khudari. I mean, these are the heroes and people know it and we're relying on them because no foreign journalists can get into Gaza right now. So, um, the, I mean, the Biden administration, apparently, according to CNN, told uh, Netanyahu that time is sort of running out for, uh, you know, the, basically soon there will be some tipping point where public opinion is going to compel the Biden administration to push for a ceasefire. And this is during this happened while Anthony Blinken was in Tel Aviv uh, delivering some phony statement on how he's going to protect Palestinian civilians in Gaza by uh, telling Israel to use slightly smaller bombs when it uh, drops them on on families full of, uh, of 50, 60 Palestinians per house. And what did Benjamin Netanyahu do? He publicly stated that he rejects it completely. So, I mean, it's going to take a massive uh, uprising around the world and all the capitals and all the cities to compel this killing machine to stop. And no matter what, Israel is going to come out of this weekend because it cannot achieve the goals that Benjamin Netanyahu has stated out, has stated from the beginning of defeating Hamas, uh, of, of, you know, of, of bringing some kind of peace to the region. There is no military solution. There is only a political solution. And this is what we need the United States uh, to call for. But we're not seeing it. Uh, I just interviewed Professor Finkelstein. He was rather pessimistic, I must say. I don't share that pessimism. Uh, for a start, actually, the Hamas fighters in the, uh, on the ground fighting with the Israeli forces seem to be doing extraordinarily well. And you can measure that in part by the lack of penetration into Gaza by Israeli forces. You and I both know Gaza very well. If you were coming from a comfortable kibbutz or Shankin Street near the beach in Tel Aviv, you wouldn't want to be fighting ghosts in the alleyways of Gaza, would you? It would be a terrifying experience. And I think any, you know, any Israeli soldier who's, who's there is gripped by fear uh, no matter how hepped up on on you know nationalist sentiment they may be, I mean the fact is the Al Qassam brigades have been preparing for this very moment for years. They knew exactly what they were getting into, and they are not afraid of death. Unlike the Israeli soldiers who want to you know go home and enjoy their lives, and you know they think it's going to be some kind of uh, uh, you know relatively easy operation because they're technologically superior. What they lack is heart and this is what al-qassam has i mean we, we've all seen the video now of the al-qassam fighter running up to a tank with his bare hands and placing some kind of small explosive on it there was another video that came out yesterday um, of the uh, al-qassam brigades engaging multiple tanks uh, in close combat and so showing that they've actually destroyed several of these at least in in gaza so um, the idea that this is going to be some kind of cakewalk for Israel is absolutely false. And I think what's actually happening is that the Israeli military is hiding the number of casualties from the public. So they sure. don't know how many of their soldiers are actually being killed for this doomed uh, war effort 
Um, and, and, you know, so they'll, so they'll continue to support it as long as possible in order to extend the political career of Benjamin Netanyahu and cause as much damage as humanly possible. Uh, so I think, I think there's going to be a rude awakening at some point for Israeli society about what this war has actually meant. We just saw Trey Yinks, the Fox News uh, correspondent who is embedded with the Israeli military, say that in one attack, 20 Israeli soldiers were killed. Uh, I don't think the Israeli papers are reporting that. So um, I wonder what the actual casualties of Israeli soldiers, uh, that number is. Well, as we learned at the time of Vietnam, it's not the size of the dog in the fight that counts. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And technology is uh, next to worthless down amongst the rubble in the refugee camps uh, of Gaza. Of that, I'm sure. Uh, Now, you're making a film, Dan. How can people help you? You can, uh, if you you go to my Twitter, um, uh, you can... Uh, donate to the film via um, any number of ways by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash uncaptured. You can do it through buy me a coffee slash uncaptured. Uh, you can donate Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, um, any number of ways. You can email me uh, any way you want to donate. You, you know, you can DM me on Twitter. Um, I have, it's, it's a big project. that's about a decade in the making that I'm working on full time. And of course, anything else will go towards, um, towards uh, my outlet, Uncaptured News, where we're producing content uh, almost every day and, and trying to trying to combat the, uh, the uh, Hasbara disinformation machine. So um, we, I really appreciate the support. It's been an incredible outpouring uh, in the last weeks and, and you know, we're, we're never gonna give up. I have no doubt about that. Good luck to you, Dan. Thanks for joining us on the show. The Honorable Craig Murray, former British ambassador, is nowadays <coughs> better known for his uh, work uh, with the pen and his human rights work and his courage. But I once knew him when he was a diplomatist, and I want to talk to him about both those things, both those aspects. Now, he joins me, the Honorable Craig Murray. Thank you <coughs> for joining us. Um, before I Uh, ask you where you are. You might not want to tell me because I did hear you were in Geneva uh, seeking sanctuary. Uh, Let's uh, look at the 106th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, uh, which falls this month. (coughs) It is the case, isn't it, that Britain is the author of all this tragedy? Well, it's certainly true that the Balfour Declaration um, was the the first um, practical step to the creation of the uh, Zionist state. And of course, Britain was given the mandate by the uh, United Nations to look after Palestine and uh, and failed to to do so. Uh, And I I think, of course, the concept of a a European colonial settlement in the Middle East uh, was very much in line with with British imperial (coughs) ambition. Yes, they wanted, didn't they, uh, a little loyal Ulster in the Middle East. And that's what it was for us very briefly uh, and has been for the United States ever since. Yes, I I think that's absolutely uh, correct. And... Um, I think it's very important that we we see it in that 
context that, that Israel is a, a a European colonial settlement in in effect, uh, which has become, if you like, the um, uh, the wedge end of American policy in a regime which it's determined to dominate uh, because of because of hydrocarbons essentially. Um, so so often international politics comes back to hydrocarbons uh, when, when all all else is stripped bare. Although, uh, oddly, uh, given that Israel is an agent of the US rather than the other way around, somehow it all seems to have fed back to the metropolis. Uh, and uh, American politicians are prepared to, uh, even people who called themselves anti-war, called themselves progressive, they're, they're prepared to support anything that Israel does. It's quite extraordinary. I, th I mean, I think the most striking thing outside, of course, of the terrible events in, in Gaza, the most striking thing happening in the world over this last three, four weeks has been the total dislocation of, of politicians from the people. We have a political class across the Western world uh, which is absolutely enslaved to to Israel, uh, is prepared to excuse the most terrible, imaginable crimes uh, if it's done by Israel, is prepared to countenance genocide, uh, is prepared to set aside every value they pretend they stand for, um, in the teeth of fierce popular opposition. And it's very difficult to put together exactly how this has happened. Um, in the United States, it's partly due to the Christian Zionist strength and the Christian Zionist vote. Everywhere it's due to um, financial support from, from Zionist lobbyist groups. Um, but also, it, it appears that politicians have got themselves into a situation where they just don't mix and socialize with anybody for whom support for Israel is not an absolute article of faith. That they, they just don't meet people who have uh, a different view. And they are entirely disconcerted, I think, to find that you know a, a large majority uh, of people does not believe, do not believe that, that Zionism justifies the genocide of the Palestinians. Craig, I'm so old. I remember when the Foreign Office uh, for which you were a distinguished servant, <coughs> was filled with people uh, who took a very different position uh, towards Israel uh, than we're seeing now from Rishi Sunak's government. I would meet officials in the Foreign Office, some of them very high officials, uh, who didn't have views much different from you and me on this subject? What happened? I think um, those people got got weeded out. Uh, I think there was an increasing politicization of the Foreign Office, particularly, uh, I mean, the Civil Service in general, but also of the Foreign Office. Um, I may have played a small part in that by, by accident. When I uh, was uh, sacked by the Foreign Office for my commitment to human rights and my opposition to extraordinary rendition and torture. Uh, the Foreign Office had a seminar 
uh, to which friends of mine still in the office were were participants. And the uh, the subject of that seminar was how to stop people like Craig Murray ever getting into the Foreign Office again. Uh, so I, I I think there has been a a, a politicisation of the service, making certain that people with you know anti-Zionist views would not get would not get in. Uh, but there's also been a tremendous deprofessionalization. I, I mean, you used to have to be a fluent Arabic speaker, for example, to, to serve in any senior position in the Arab states, or fluent Russian speaker to speak, you know, to serve in Russia, that kind of thing. You, you had to have a knowledge and understanding of geography and history and culture, and all of the, the infrastructure that supported that expertise, uh, which was extremely expensive. Uh, it's all been got rid of, uh, be, you know, in, as, as savings and cuts. So you, you you now have, you know, rather amateur pick box civil servants who, who run the foreign office. It is extraordinary. I mean, uh, from the days of Lawrence of Arabia, uh, a section of the British elite loved the Arabs. Now they seem to hate them. Yeah, no, you'd have to conclude that. Uh, it, it, it is... Uh, it and and don't understand them. You, you know, a uh, uh, lack of of knowledge and expertise of crucial parts of the world has, has become a real problem for the United Kingdom. Now, uh, those of us who love you and follow you closely know that you've had your own travails. Um, I don't know how much you're able to say, but do please say what you can. Yeah, I was um, I was stopped. Um, Arriving back from Iceland from a meeting of the an international meeting of the coordination group of the um, uh, of the campaign against the extradition of Julian Assange, uh, I was stopped uh, at Glasgow Airport under Schedule Seven of the anti-terrorism laws uh, and told I was being investigated for terrorism. I therefore was not entitled to legal advice. Uh, I was told I was. Uh, I, I had no right to remain silent. And I was asked questions uh, both about the Assange campaign and WikiLeaks and about my support for uh, Palestine. Um, subsequently, I was told that I am under investigation. I received written confirmation that I am subject to a terrorism investigation, which is is ludicrous because, as you know, I'm I'm close to pacifist. I, I'm not an absolute pacifist, but I, I, I've been against war and violence my entire life. Um, and rather than uh, having you know already spent four months of my life in prison on on, on a ludicrous pretext, um, I wasn't going to stay stay around for him to do it to me again. So I decided uh, to come here for, to Switzerland and, and visit the United Nations and also put in a a formal complaint about my treatment to the United Nations, which I which I have done. And what's your status now? Are you seeking political asylum there? I'm I'm waiting at the moment um, while uh, my legal team in Scotland, headed by Arma Anwar, um, uh, while they try to clarify, you know, what what is this this ludicrous nonsense of, of a terrorism investigation. So um, uh, it, it, it may be this is just another piece of, of police harassment which is going to blow over. Uh, but and, and, you know, until that becomes clear, uh, I'm, I'm going to stay at the country. But I, I'm not at this stage uh, applying for political asylum. 
I think I'll avoid Glasgow Airport when I come back to the country myself. Although it happened to our colleague Kit Clarenberg at Luton Airport. So it seems there's no hiding place from this kind of absurdity. It's happened to it happened to um, Joanna Ross, who used to um, work for Sputnik in uh, Edinburgh, uh, who, who's a very nice lady who certainly has no connection to uh, terrorism. It happened to Vanessa Beely. Uh, it happened to Professor John Lockland, uh, who has worked for many members of the European Parliament, for example, in their offices and and and. and is, is quite a substantial figure, again, with no, no earthly connection to terrorism. Um, I've about six other journalists who have contacted me. Of course, if you work for the BBC or The Guardian, this isn't going to happen to you. But if you're anywhere in the uh, alternative media, if you're anybody putting out a view uh, contrary to that sanctioned by the state, then you're liable to be stopped. And, and of course, because these are anti-terrorism powers, uh, it gives them enormous rights. All my electronics were seized that uh, they've gone through my entire life. Um, uh, and, and of course, I'm not a terrorist, I'm a journalist, but they're doing this systematically against journalists who, who don't tow the neocon line. I mean, bluntly, I'm very surprised they haven't done it to you yet, George. <laughs> I expect you. <laughs> uh, maybe you're just too high profile. I don't know. But uh, it, it's very... Well, maybe, it, it's become uh, uh, maybe, very I, maybe I just haven't been home yet. I just haven't come home yet. <laughs> uh, Craig, uh, the, uh, Lenin was in exile in Switzerland, in, in uh, Geneva, I think. And he went on to um, bring about a successful revolution. Maybe you'll end up doing the same. Heaven knows we need one. We, we, we certainly do. And I, I, should, um, I should be delighted for that. But I, I, no, I shan't, be, I shan't be returning to the Finland station <laughs> anytime soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. My, my apologies uh, for that. It's quite a distant line. Uh, Ahmed is on the line from Lebanon. And I was determined to get to him for obvious reasons. Ahmed, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Galloway. It's, a, it's an honor to speak to you, sir. Yeah, I've been following your field you, for years, and uh, I, I have deep respect for everything you've been doing for everyone in this region. Honestly, sir, uh, from like what, what we've been seeing every day, uh, in Lebanon and in Gaza specifically, it's been it's been honestly torture for everyone. Uh, I currently do not reside in Lebanon. I'm in in the Middle East at the moment, but I am not in Lebanon. But mm -hmm. the, like the things that we've been seeing, sir, every single day, the deaths, the children, like every single day, I've been I've been get, getting messages of the pictures of the children dying. And it's like, I have my own child, honestly. And I walk in every day and I see him and it just tears me apart when I think about the, the mm. parents in Gaza mm. right now. And like today, now in Lebanon as well, three babies just killed for nothing. Three little girls. I, I, I tell you what, Ahmed, I, I, I can't look at my own children or anybody else's children without seeing them in these horror uh, pictures, uh, it's like, uh, well, it's 
disturbed the peace of my mind, I must tell you, and that's not that easy to do. Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes, so I want to ask you something. What effect yeah. do you think this murder of these three children in Lebanon this evening will have on the situation? Norman Finkelstein uh, was, I think his word was, disappointed uh, in uh, mm. Said Hassan Nasrallah's speech on Friday. I was not, and I gave a mm -hmm. response to it. You can see it on all my uh, social media platforms, and it's my pinned tweet. I was not, I think, uh, overall. Uh, Professor Norman was a little bit pessimistic, both about Gaza and about Lebanon. But you're Lebanese. Uh, what do you think will now happen? Now that Israel is killing children in the car in the night. I believe, sir, uh, since, since this murder, this disgusting crime today in Lebanon, I think Israel just escalated to a whole new level with this uh, war. And... Like many Lebanese and many Arabs don't understand this. Let's not kid ourselves. What's happening between Israel and Lebanon is is war. Like it's not like some people believe it's just like some rockets being thrown here and there. It's not. It is war. And what Israel did today is not is not just going to be left unpunished. And I've seen some rockets that have been dropped on uh, Kiryat Shmona, uh, and people think, oh, that's it. It is not. And this crime, like, like I don't even, I can't even begin to explain how angry people are right now. And the thing is, people don't are not seeing like, like what this what Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah said. He, as, as I, I'm pretty sure you heard what Scott Ritter said about about the speech as well. It was perfect. It was perfect. And he, he wasn't saying, like, we're not part of this. He didn't say, oh, we're not going to attack or we're not, we're not doing anything. And he, and he even said that, like, don't, this is not the only thing we're going to be doing, and there's more. And I, he hasn't lied yet. So He's never lied. He's never lied. Uh, he's one of the few that has never lied. And uh, I have the very strong feeling that uh, they ain't seen nothing yet uh, from uh, Saad Hassan and from his uh, people. Uh, of course, Lebanon is uh, very dear uh, to me. Two of my children are half Lebanese. Uh, I understand the real fear there is, given the economic uh, perils uh, of, uh, of Lebanon, about a major war. But Lebanon cannot remove itself from uh, its geography, its history, its political economy. The reality is, if Israel keeps massacring Palestinians and keeps massacring Lebanese, there's going to be one hell of a war, and Lebanon cannot escape it. Uh, Ahmed, thank you uh, indeed for that call. Uh, top YouTube comment is from Ikman Salim. My question to Galloway is, how is this going to end? Is it with the invasion of Gaza leading to the invasion of the West Bank? Is the Israeli government working 
towards greater Israel. Well, it's all the time working towards that. Uh, they are already invaded in the West Bank. The question is, uh, when will the Palestinian security forces uh, be uh, permitted to stand up and resist? And there's some talk this evening uh, that a 24-hour ultimatum has been uh, given uh, by a group calling itself Abu Jundal within the security forces of the Palestinian Authority uh, demanding that within 24 hours President Abbas unleashes them so that they can defend the Palestinians who are being murdered uh, in very significant numbers by settlers and by Israeli forces in the West Bank where there is no Hamas for those of you who still think Israel is fighting Hamas. Uh, there's already an invasion of Gaza. How far it will go will be determined both by the resistance on the ground and the resistance in the sponsoring countries uh, who, if they begin to feel that their public is demanding that enough is really definitely enough, uh, they will have to call a halt. Uh, to it. We're not there yet, but I am not pessimistic. Don't forget that I took up this Palestinian cause more than 50 years ago when you could have fitted all of our supporters into one room. Now you cannot contain them, not in Trafalgar Square, not in Hyde Park, not in all the streets between the two. You cannot contain it in my country or in any of the countries around the world. Senegal banned Palestinian demonstrations, but the people demonstrated nonetheless. And the giants of Russia and China and Iran have not spoken yet. So everything depends on everything else. Politics is a kinetic business. If you sit passively and allow the evildoers to do whatever they please, then that's what will happen. But if you stand up against it, and if you rally other people to be against it, and if your arguments are powerful enough that your numbers begin to grow and grow, indeed exponentially grow, then the others get worried. Very, very worried. Thank you for everything. My voice has been rather uh, difficult this evening. I apologize for that. I've been speaking, orating just too much over this last uh, week or so. So do forgive me. I'll be back tip top, God willing, on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9 p.m. Join me then for the midweek edition of the mother of all talk shows and bring another viewer with you. 2,966,000 last week. Keep growing.